This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Robert Rim, Managing Editor for Arch Street Press. I'll be your host today. Today, our guest is Vivek Maru, CEO and founder of Namati, an organization with a mission to catalyze and build a movement of legal empowerment across the globe. For the estimated 4 billion people who live outside the protection of the law, the law is viewed as an abstract concept or as a threat, but not something that can be used as a tool to secure basic human rights. Quote, palpable earth in people's hands, not abstractions sealed in books or courtrooms, in Vivek's own words. Lawyer services across the board are costly, and few people have access to resources that connect the law to real life. Vivek founded Namati in 2011 after years of working for grassroots movements in various countries and observing injustices and the maladministration of the justice system. The organization employs a three-pronged approach to realize the mission of creating a world where governments are responsive and citizens are empowered, partnering with civil society organizations and governments to implement and evaluate legal empowerment strategies, creating an international community of practitioners committed to advancing justice, and conducting rigorous research and data collection in each case. Vivek graduated magna cum laude from Harvard College and attended Yale Law School. He serves on the International Advisory Council of the Commonwealth Human Rights Initiative, the advisory board of another organization featured in our Innovate podcasts, ID Insight, and the governing board of the public entrepreneurship organization, Respublica. He served as an affiliate expert for the UN Commission on Legal Empowerment and is a term member on the Council on Foreign Relations. He received the Pioneer Award from the North American South Asian Bar Association in 2008, and in 2014, he was elected as an Ashoka Fellow. Vivek, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you, Robert. Thank you for having me. Thank you for that extremely generous introduction. <laughs> sure. Well, you cultivated an interest early on in the tenets of Gandhian social action, prompting you to not only write your college thesis on Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., and Malcolm X, but to also spend the year after graduating from Harvard in India delving deeper into studying the Gandhian perspective. Tell us about this year in particular, working for two grassroots organizations and what you learned. I, um, <clears throat> as you said, I had written a thesis about Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and after spending all that time in the library exploring their words and their thoughts and, and the history of, of that work, I was interested to find out what the living legacy of, of Gandhi and social action was. Um, and I ended up in my own native place, the, the, the place that my parents come from, which is Kutch in the, on the western corner of India, um, working with a couple of very local organizations. One is called Kutch Mahila Vika Sangatan, which means Kutch Women's Development Cooperative. And the other one um, at the time was called Jan Vikas Ecology Cell. It's now called Sahajivan. Um, and I was living in a hut of dung and sticks in uh, Central Kutch and um, uh, working on girls' education and watershed management. So building simple structures to let the water seep into the ground instead of run off to the ocean. It's a very drought-prone region. Um, and I, I learned so much. It was, it was just a year, but I... I um, my instincts about social action um, really uh, first formed in those days. And I, um, I, I, to this day, deeply admire. They're some of my best friends, the people who run and work in those organizations. Um, <clears throat> and, and that experience really stayed with me. Is this a direction that you felt, even as a boy, that you always had? Or is this something that developed while you were growing up? Uh, my grandfather was a Gandhian of sorts, my mother's father, and had been in prison um, during the Gandhian movement and had run for office a few times, never won. So there was that influence and interest, but um, I can't really say what I was 
15, I had it much of a clue of where I would end up. I sort of figured out as I went along. And were there any uh, particular experiences prior to your college career uh, that stimulated your interest in social justice? Certainly um, a lot of reading and listening to stories um, from people in my family, people in my community, and then also some early experiments with very local activism. I remember when we were in high school, uh, my local Connecticut town was proposing to drastically slash the education budget. And I think it was my mom who kind of gave me a kick in the butt and said, are you just going to stay at home and let this happen? And we ended up organizing a crew of students and we went door to door and we led a campaign <clears throat> and uh, we managed to get the budget approved and we also managed to get the first student representative on the board of education and I was so short in high school so the, you know this is like this five foot five kid um, uh, with a little with a little nameplate uh, sitting at the board of education um, uh, meetings on Wednesday nights at the town hall. Um, that experience of seeing something going wrong, taking action, pulling together a group of people working together, and then actually sort of getting a chance to um, take part in public decisions and, and see how we could sort of carve room for a voice that, that wasn't there already. That, that that stuck with me. You know, experiments like those certainly uh, shaped me growing up. And did you feel at that time that your interest in social justice would actually play itself out in a career, or did that come later? I think it came later. I also had a wonderful teacher, Mrs. Lohman, um, who taught an interdisciplinary class that she called Humanities. Uh, so certainly... I was beginning to ask these kinds of questions, but the the concrete shape that a career would take, um, I really I really had no idea. And, and, and to this day, I feel like I'm kind of making that road by walking. Sure. Well, it's it's great that you remembered this teacher, and uh, we're all extremely fortunate to have teachers that we recall years later who've made a profound impact on our lives. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. she was remarkable. She is she is remarkable. You continued on to Yale Law School, one of the most prestigious institutions in the world after graduating from Harvard, but seemed to have become uh, somewhat disillusioned with the conventional approaches to law in its conception of conflicts in, your own words, narrow adversarial terms. You almost dropped out in the first few months. Can you tell us more about what your observations at Yale suggested to you about the way the law is administered? and uh, perceived in our world today, and how does this not line up with the legacy of Gandhian social action? Mm. So I would, you know, I had spent that year in Kutch and living in a hut of dung and sticks among these Gandhian um, activists, and uh, the transition back to Yale was, was uh, stark. I remember in, the, in, in Dador, which is the name of the village in Kutch, it's about a mile walk to, to get water for drinking or for any purpose. And then I remember standing in the cafeteria at the juice machine. You know, I had seen these before, obviously. I, I grew up in the United States, but somehow that, that act of pressing against the, the juice, the little lever on the juice machine and watching this pink stuff just come flowing out of it uh, sort of sent my head spinning. Um, so there was that element of just transitioning back home uh, to what felt like a very different world. But then specifically with respect to the law, there were two things that about, um, about the law as it seemed to be presented in that first year of law school that really differed from what I understood to be a Gandhian approach. And the first is that... Um, <clears throat> The, the law was presented as, um, as you said, adversarial, as a conflict between parties when Gandhi's interest is really in transcendence of conflict, that, you know, you and I both will kind of reach a higher place. Um, and then the second one was this reactive uh, sensibility that oftentimes it seemed like 
injustice happens and then lawyers would show up trying to figure out how to remedy uh, something that's gone wrong. And though Gandhi spent his life fighting for independence, the sort of twin struggle for him and the one that he uh, in some ways prioritized was this process of constructive development, constructive crafting of alternatives. And and uh, the law, in contrast, at least at that first glimpse, felt very reactive. And in your experience uh, in dealing with so many people, uh, is in fact the transcendence of social conflict uh, something that uh, that people give enough priority to? Mm. It's obviously That's a great question. It, yeah, it's it's obviously a, just a, an idealistic and and wonderful goal, but so often we see on a daily basis. Uh, across our planet that this just doesn't come into play? That's a great question. Um, I, uh, it's, it's powerful when it does happen. And I think I've seen concrete examples and holding on to those is part of what it means to live, hopefully. But, but it's true that, that, uh, when you look around the world right now, the notion of transcending conflict um, and finding common ground—it's—it's uh, it's not an easy notion to 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 hang on to in the circumstances. Um, but but every day, in in sometimes smaller, sometimes larger ways, um, we we do find examples of of what that looks like. <clears throat> And certainly through your work with Namati, you're you're helping to make that happen. Yeah, that's the goal. I mean, and it's not to say that in all circumstances, all communities that we um, support are looking for totally happy resolution of the conflicts they face. Sometimes the lines really are drawn starkly, um, but but we do we do attempt to work with that spirit of ultimately finding win-win solutions, finding things that are going to um, advance the interests on all sides of a given conflict, <clears throat> find, finding common ground. Sure. I mean, just to give a concrete... Yeah, go ahead. No, please, please. I was going to say, just to give a concrete example, we work with communities to uh, protect their uh, customary land rights. And, you know, the, the situation is that there's a huge rush in investment interest for land around the world, but many people live on land that they think of as their own um, but they don't have a any sort of map or piece of paper or formal tenure, and we support communities that go through a process to map their lands and to and to apply for formal legal rights to their lands. And in the process of doing so, one of the things you have to grapple with is boundary disputes, um, and those can feel very sum, very zero sum. You know, is is the line here or is the line over there? But we have find, found that through artful mediate mediation. And um, through a process of visioning where, where communities think out 100 years into the future, what kind of a world, what kind of a uh, world and what kind of a flourishing community are we trying to build, that it is often possible to transcend what are even sometimes very long-standing boundary disputes through in the process of generating a, a collective community proposal to protect these lands that are often under threat. And you mentioned artful mediation, which is such a, such a critical component to bringing people together. Uh, and um, just thinking about uh, after you uh, relocated uh, to Sierra Leone after law school, shortly after the end of the 11-year Civil War, tell us about your advocacy for reform of the legal system there and how it led to your founding of Namati. Mm. Yeah, so I, I moved to Sierra Leone in 2003 after the war, after the end of this brutal civil war that lasted 11 years. Um, <clears throat> and at the time, there was a consensus that among the root causes of that long conflict were arbitrariness in governance and maladministration of justice. And there was a deep interest in doing something about, something to support people when they faced injustice in their daily lives. But a real open question what that would look like, given the fact that the social institutions were so damaged. Um, there were a hundred lawyers total in the country at the time in 2003, and more than 90 of those were in the capital, Freetown. 
So a lawyer-based model was really a non-starter. It's also a country with a plural legal system where you have a formal system that's largely concentrated in the capital and a customary system to which most people turn, but lawyers don't even have um, a right of representation in those customary institutions. So a kind of lawyer-based model for providing legal aid really wouldn't have been workable. And what we did instead was we worked on this community paralegal approach where you have these frontline intermediaries who can kind of provide a bridge between these different systems and really be the kind of dynamic, creative, problem-solving force. Um, and, and the paralegals are indeed backed by a tiny core of lawyers who can litigate in really severe circumstances in a kind of sparing and strategic way. Um, and we found over time that despite the very difficult circumstances, that uh, well-trained, well-supported frontline advocates can squeeze justice out of even a, a, a very damaged or, or even a broken system. Um, and after doing that, uh, this was an organization originally called Team Up for Justice, and then over time we started to grow a coalition of groups who were applying this approach. Um, so we started in 2003. By 2012, we managed to advocate with the government uh, in a new legal aid law that um, these frontline paralegals should be really be recognized for the role they are playing as providers of primary justice services. A, a decent analogy is a community health worker. You know, in, in, in healthcare, we've kind of long acknowledged that you, you, don't, you couldn't put a doctor in every village. You probably wouldn't want to. Um, rather, you, you want a frontline of community health workers um, who, can, who can really reach communities where they are at. So these community paralegals are sort of the legal analogy to that. And in 2012, the government did adopt a law that called for a paralegal in every chiefdom. So that was an important moment for our movement in that country um, because it really gave, for the first time, substantial state recognition of the role these frontline advocates were playing. And what's the legal system today like in Sierra Leone? It's still a plural one with a customary and a formal system coexisting. And that's the case in many African countries and and many countries around the world. Um, There's still a very small number of lawyers, not 100 anymore, maybe 250 or so. Um, And the the, the more significant number is that the large proportion, it's still the case that more than 90, 95% are in Freetown, the capital. Uh, So... To this day, and if you think of the big justice challenges that that Sierra Leone is facing now, for example, the need to protect um, land and natural resource rights as there's a kind of rush to invest and and rush to acquire large tracts of land, um, the need to improve the health system and ensure uh, access to effective health care in the wake of the, the Ebola crisis that has been going on for the last year. To tackle those challenges... Um, I, we really see these frontline advocates as playing a vital and, and, and crucial role. And that uh, calls to mind all of the people who have no legal empowerment. So what, in fact, does legal empowerment mean, and, and what kind of human rights infringements have you seen in cases where people have no legal empowerment? Mm. The reason we say legal empowerment, I mean, to give you a contrast, <clears throat> if you walk into a lawyer's office in... Freetown. Um, And it's not that different from a lawyer's office in, say, Washington, D.C., where I'm sitting right now. Um, The the lawyer will say, you know, they'll kind of listen to your problem and they'll say, okay, Aronieri, this is like Sierra Leonean Creole, Aronieri, lefty money, you know, put put the money on the table, you go no more, me go handle them for you, you know, go ahead, I'm going to take care of this, I've got you now. There's sort of this expert relationship. and when we say legal empowerment, we're referring to a different message. We're saying, rather than I'm going to solve this problem for you or on your behalf, you and I are going to solve this problem together. And in the process, you are going to uh, learn something. You're going to be in a stronger position so that if you face a similar problem in the future, you'll be better equipped to deal with it. Um, And so that's what we mean by legal empowerment. We're trying to break down... Uh, this uh, expert relationship or this, you know, kind of notion of a technical service for 
a victim and, and, and really put that power of law into the hands of everyone, of, of, of all people, all citizens. Um, and what that looks like in practice, I mean, for example, in Sierra Leone, um, we are representing 48 villages who, um, where the, 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 the people living in these villages put their thumbprints on a lease agreement with a biodiesel firm based in Switzerland um, called Adax. And the lease agreement is for 50 years, and the rent is $3.60 per acre per year over the course of 50 years just a few um, dollars uh, less than in new york in new york or washington right <laughs> just a few dollars less in new york or washington um and when we we read the contents of this lease agreement to these farmers they were shocked it reminded me of the way that uh native americans responded when they were told the contents of treaties that they had supposedly committed to in that they said they didn't say so much that's not fair or I didn't agree with to that. They said that's not possible in Sierra Leone in, in Creole. They say asafulai, you know, that is not possible. What you just described is not possible because one of the features of the lease agreement is that it covers all of their land uh, for these forty-eight villages. It includes the water bodies, the forests, even the homes where they live, and their understanding of customary tenure and of their relationship to, the, to that land is that it's impossible that they would have thumbprinted their, their, their rights away completely for 50 years. Um, and so that's an example where legal empowerment is necessary. People shouldn't be cajoled into um, uh, accepting agreements that they don't understand. And paralegals, grassroots legal advocates, can play a crucial role in making sure that people understand the terms of a potential agreement and interestingly, this community and, and many communities with whom we work was not opposed to investment altogether. It was really a question of on what terms is the investment going to take place. And so we've been we've been working with the company, and to their credit, um, they have come around to accept that there were deep problems in the contents of the lease and in the process by the, which the lease was agreed. Uh, and so we're actually in the process of, of renegotiating. And the legal system will support that renegotiation. Good question. <laughs> you know, I, I mentioned that I was trying to make my career the road of my career by walking. I would say that's the that's the truth about legal empowerment in general. That um, we are often making the road by walking. So, the legal system in Sierra Leone <clears throat> these are still um, cutting edge issues. There there hasn't been a lot of litigation on what the boundaries of customary tenure are or what the exact appropriate process should be for negotiating these sorts of large-scale lease agreements. Um, because in this case, the paramount chiefs over the three chiefdoms uh, where these 48 villages are, they had agreed uh, and they had sort of cajoled the, the individual landowners to agree as well. Um, and under one version of customary law, the paramount chief's consent is adequate, but um, our argument is that is a real misreading, that indeed the paramount chiefs are trustees, but that, that trustee um, status requires consent of the landowners themselves. Um, and the other, the other twist is that this is a, a favored project by the president of the country, so that adds a kind of political dimension. Um, but uh, but so far, so good. The company itself has agreed to re renegotiate. Two out of the three Paramount Chiefs actually readily agreed to renegotiate because they themselves also recognized that there were deep problems. The third one took a while but has, has since come around. It's good to hear how people are in fact coming around even though it must require incredible patience just to take the longer view all the time d despite the urgency of the issues, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a bit of patience, a bit of courage, um, and our clients themselves, I, I think, is where a lot of our own uh, motivation and spirit comes from. And for them, this is life or death. I mean, this is, this is their greatest asset, and it's the thing that they inherited from their forefathers, and they, they imagine that they will be able to 
bequeathed to their descendants. <clears throat> and so um, they are in it for the long haul. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with Managing Editor Robert Rim and Vivek Maru, CEO and founder of Namati. And share with us the three facets of Namati's model, uh, grassroots innovation, building a global network, and research and advocacy. Right, yeah, I mean, you know, the, those are sort of the three wheels that we have turning simultaneously. Um, and together, the goal is to really grow a, a global field and a global movement around this approach. Um, so the first is really about demonstrating how paralegals can be effective on some of these massive justice issues. I talked about protecting land rights, protecting environmental rights. Another, the, the other two areas that we are uh, attacking are ensuring effective delivery of essential services, things like health care, um, making sure that the investments and the policies that are decided at the top are actually delivered when the rubber hits the road. Um, and then the, 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 the fourth one is citizenship rights is for communities who have historically been stateless to support them to secure effective legal identity. Um, there are many communities around the world who, 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 for one reason or another, lack any legal identity at all. And paralegals can play a crucial role in securing citizenship rights. So, so you know, the, 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 the term you use, grassroots innovation, is really about developing methods by which these these advocates can generate results on some of these massive uh, global challenges. And then um, we collect data on every single case that the paralegals handle, and that information provides a really powerful basis from which to advocate for structural changes. So just to stick with that example of the um, Adax case, the, the land case I was describing in Sierra Leone, some of the things that went wrong We've, we've seen now patterns of how things are going wrong. And this year, the country is determining a new land policy and a new land law. And so we have a really powerful basis from which to advocate for positive provisions in that new law based on all this experience of dealing with cases and how these things are playing out in practice. Um, and then the third strategy is really about the movement building um, that, you know, the we, we want to foster a community of, of organizations and practitioners who are applying these approaches around the world. I, I had mentioned earlier the, the analogy to community health workers. Uh, for community health workers, there's such a rich uh, global discourse. There's, there's community health worker manuals that are tried and tested and translated into multiple languages. There's lots of evidence about which strategies work in which circumstances. There's also billions of dollars of financing because we've recognized um, that this is just a pivotal part of how you build a healthy society. Um, but in contrast, for, for community paralegals or, or, or legal empowerment, the, the whole field is much, much more nascent and, and, and much more thin. And I still see uh, people trying to set up a paralegal program as if they were inventing the wheel for the first time. And we really want to um, end that. We really want to have a rich and, and, and robust community around our field of practice. So that third strategy is really about connecting groups to each other, sharing methods, sharing evidence, um, and building the armies together of, of grassroots legal advocates that we need in order to take these challenges on at scale. And since Namatia has really paved the way in a lot of ways, are these people and organizations uh, readily receptive to, to joining this network? 
we've gotten a, a ton of interest. Um, there's about 450 groups from around the world who have joined already, and, and these are representing every region of the world. Um, and yes, when we have created spaces for people to come together, we have found that there is a huge thirst for um, learning and for collaboration, and that people are at it. You know, there, there are amazing groups around the world who are working on these issues, who are um, who are who are adopting a paralegal approach, and sometimes they use different names. You know, whether they call it a paralegal or a uh, grassroots advocate or a community at legal officer, um, they're they're adapting one version or another of this approach, and they 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 are eager to be able to. Uh, learn from others' experience and to be part of something bigger. Um, for example, we, we just launched a, uh, a learning exchange where some of the veteran organizations, one in South Africa called the National Alliance for the Development of Community Advice Offices, and another one in the Philippines called the Alternative Law Groups. And these are, these are groups that have been doing this kind of work for decades. In South Africa, paralegals go back to the 1950s when... Uh, the ANC deployed paralegals in their offices as a way to help people survive and, and, and resist the apartheid regime. So the, these couple of organizations who are sort of lead members of our network, they're going to host um, people from, from, from other newer efforts and, and just, you know, spend three, four weeks walking, in, walking together and, and seeing how the work looks and having having an exchange on uh, comparing notes about methodology about how you how you track data on cases how you how you tackle tricky ones let's say involving um, uh, getting justice from a, a a mining company where the operations are outside of the country where the where the conflict is taking place or how do you motivate and support and supervise frontline staff when they're geographically spread out grappling with these kinds of practical questions um, and we've been we've been swamped with applications from all over the place to take part in that learning exchange um, we were talking to one guy last week who lives a hundred kilometers from any form of electric communication and he took a bus to town in order to send in his 12-page uh, application to take part so yes I, 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 I feel strongly that there that the need and the demand and the energy is there and in what countries does Namati currently operate? So, so we've got um, paralegal efforts, which we are implementing directly in partner with uh, uh, local organizations in eight countries, nine countries total, um, uh, five in Africa, three in South Asia, and uh, it's the beginnings of something here in the United States. And then the network, which is the sort of broader community, there are members from from every region of the world. And how does Namati reconcile the differences in culture and the obvious and, and divergent structures of legal systems in providing legal empowerment to those country citizens? You know, that that's a good point. Uh, one way in which the analogy to healthcare doesn't apply is that legal systems vary more than say the human body does and and as you go from country to country um, you're really talking about a different set of circumstances a, a different history um, and, a, and a different body of laws and one of the great lessons of this movement is that for grassroots advocates to be effective they really need to be uh, good listeners, and they need to understand the, the details of the context they are working in. And indeed, that is one of the advantages of this approach, I would say. Um, but despite those differences, we have found that there is a lot um, that uh, a lot of learning that does have relevance across boundaries. So, for example, folks in India who are working on environmental justice, they're supporting fisher people to um, to take action when the the mangrove uh, trees on which their livelihoods depend because that's where the fish breed when those mangroves have been illegally cut down by by a new industrial development and the the, the the paralegals among the fisher people are trying to support the community to take action and make use of the existing environmental laws 
um, that experience is is super relevant to uh, fisher people off the coast of say uh, Latin America or West Africa. We we've found that that uh, despite differences in laws, um, if you can create space for people to kind of compare notes, that there's a lot that we can learn from each other. And tell us what the training of community paralegals entails and uh, what trainees are well suited to achieve through their involvement with NAMATI. Say it again. Uh, I was asking about the training of community paralegals, what it involves, and what they're well suited to achieve uh, through working with NAMATI. <clears throat> so we always do something up front sometimes it's a week sometimes it's two weeks but really the heart of learning this work is in doing and so over the course of a year or even two years um, we, we really think of um, paralegals or grassroots advocates as being in training where they're getting regular supervision and support and they're coming together periodically uh, and honestly that that process is ongoing that's one of the findings we're, we're going to be publishing this year a book of uh, a comparative study where we did research on the impact of community paralegal efforts across six countries. And one of the lessons that came out of that book is that um, in order for paralegals to be effective, it's really important that they have an ongoing structure for support and supervision and connection to a lawyer who can litigate in severe circumstances. Um, so, so more than the initial training, we really put emphasis on making sure that those structures for long-run, high-quality execution um, are, are in place. And um, uh, in terms of what people can achieve, um, this is really uh, an extraordinary vocation. The, these paralegals are some of the people I admire most on earth, um, and they manage to be a bridge between these formal legal protections, which are oftentimes laying in books somewhere quietly, um, and real life, and, and they can they can breathe real life into those formal legal protections, and they are often regarded by their communities as uh, really respected, um, really uh, important contributors. And what's the title of the book? The book is called. Uh, we're, we actually still been. Um, uh, workshopping the title, I think we're going with bringing law to life. Hmm. Community this, paralegals in the pursuit of justice. Oh, and this will be widely available, I assume. Yeah, uh, forthcoming with Cambridge University Press. We're 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 just uh, signing the papers in the in, in the next month or so. Wonderful to hear and share with our listeners. Namati has two meanings in Sanskrit. Tell us about them. Yes, uh, it's a Sanskrit word. It means. Um, to bend something into a curve, like uh, if you had a long piece of uh, wood and you wanted to string, a, string it as a bow, you'd need to bend it. Um, and the reason we chose it was because of this quote that uh, Martin Luther King has. He was paraphrasing a, an abolitionist, and he, and he said that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. So we, we say Namati because we are dedicated to bending that curve. And uh, Vivek, what do you consider to be the primary cause of the justice system's deviation from perpetuating justice on a larger scale to what you're really advocating and, and looking to implement uh, to a system that grants access to justice uh, only to those who can afford it? Yeah, what is it? <laughs> because the, because <laughs> yes, if we had the answer to that, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, you know, because the, the, the principles have been there. You find them in our spiritual traditions. Um, you find them in political philosophy going back centuries in, in, in many different cultures. The principles of, of respecting dignity, of, of equity, um, <clears throat> of participation, of, of, of societies where uh, there there is genuine room for the the, uh, the 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 active involvement and the agency of all citizens those ideas we have had for for so long and why is it that the reality is so starkly different um, I I uh, 
I, I, uh, I, I don't completely know, except to say that it's driven by massive imbalances of power, and that uh, as a species, we've, we've got a lot of work to do. We've, we've, got, um, we've got a long road in order to live up to the ideals to which we have committed. And are you optimistic that this road will in fact change? I'm, you know, by nature a hopeful person. Um, and some days that feels um, a little bananas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and other days it feels um, right on. Well, hopefully the right on days uh, well surpass the bananas days. <laughs> Well, our interview with the founding partner of ID Insight, Neil Buddy mm. Shaw, mm. Uh, shared with our audience the power of using rigorous evidence in developing countries to support mm. movements for social change. And uh, this use of evidence and data collection is also integral to Namati's model. Tell us about your experience on the advisory board for ID Insight and about the crossover between that role and your work with Namati. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of Buddy and what they are doing. Um, and for too long, uh, development has been approached without um, a real rigor in terms of uh, causes and effects. Um, and in our case, and, and, and so what I, what, the, what, what I love about ID Insight is that they are committed to, um, in a very practical and low-cost and uh, fast way, to applying some powerful research methods, in particular randomized experiments, in order to test the effectiveness of development interventions. Um, and, and for us as well, that, that commitment to evaluation and to genuine humble learning we, is really in, deep in our DNA, and, and, and we, we try hard to um, study the impact of everything we're doing. Um, <clears throat> and in addition to, there's sort of two values in that, in that, in that um, process of data collection and analysis and, um, and, and, and constant learning. One value is you can continuously improve the methods by which paralegals work. You can get incrementally better at winning on things like uh, abusive land rights or violations of environmental law or denial of citizenship rights. Um, as you analyze how cases have gone, um, what's working and what isn't, you can use that information to improve the methods and the strategies that, that the frontline advocates undertake. Um, and it's really powerful to show the data to paralegals themselves, put it on a screen. Um, uh, there's some healthy competition because you can show sort of resolution rates, for example, across paralegals. Um, and, and, and people can have a sense of what it is they're accomplishing and how it compares. Um, <clears throat> so there's that one great internal kind of program improvement value. And then the second is really in harvesting that information to advocate for structural changes. You know, so if I just take the example of Myanmar, we've got about 30 paralegals working across eight states in the country to protect uh, farmers' land rights. And they've supported about over 2,000 farmers in the, in the last year who are, act, who, who are active clients who have gone through, worked through administrative processes to either register their lands under a registration process that government has set up or to try to recover uh, lands that were grabbed in the past or that were misclassified. Um, and, and Myanmar really has a um, long history of abuse of land rights. It's one of the key injustices going back uh, 50 years. Um, so that, that effort of 30 paralegals serving a couple thousand farmers, that's the biggest of its kind in the country, but it's still a drop in the bucket in terms of the overall agrarian population of Myanmar. Myanmar is about 60 million people, about two-thirds farmers, so that the total population is something like 40 million farmers. And the, the connection between that, those grassroots efforts supporting uh, thousands and the fate of the millions really turns on our ability to collect data because we've, we've collected data rigorously on every case that the paralegals have handled. And this is a big year in Burma because they're developing a new land policy and a new land law. 
And we are able to draw on information from that grassroots experience across eight different states, which is information that no one in the country has on how the existing laws are working in practice. And from that to derive um, uh, recommendations for how this policy can be can be better and can serve Burma's people um, uh, better. Uh, so, so that's the second value in being rigorous about uh, analyzing everything we do is that you can translate grassroots experience into large-scale structural changes. And a strong advisory council can play such a key role. And uh, I'm thinking of Namatiz, which includes notable figures from all walks of life and areas of expertise. Uh, Madeleine Albright, uh, Amart Gesen, George Soros, Fazal Abbott, to name a few. What lessons from these people have you incorporated into Namati's framework? Mm. Yeah, we are very fortunate to um, have these um, gurus associate themselves with us. Um, Amart Gesen is such a pioneer for this basic idea that um, development and justice are inextricable. Um, and that the pursuit of one implies and requires the pursuit of the other. And that's a big message for, for Namati. Um, one of the campaigns that we've been undertaking with our entire network is to make sure that in the new round of uh, development goals that is going to succeed the Millennium Development Goals that are expiring this year that were written in 2000. Uh, that first round didn't mention issues of law or justice at all. And we've been arguing that in the next round, it's really crucial that they do, that we have made substantial progress in combating poverty, which was the aim of the Millennium Development Goals, but we're really far from what justice demands, and we're not going to get there until, unless we take issues of law and justice head on. Um, and and that, that fundamental argument is something that uh, Amartya Sen, in both his philosophy and his economics, has... Um, has uh, been a kind of monumental proponent for, as have other members of our advisory council, and they've really been um, wonderful advocates for this position. Um, uh, Sir Abed, who Sir Fazal Abed, who's the founder of BRAC, <clears throat> um, he has uh, built the largest development NGO in the world. And one of the things that I really admire about BRAC and have, have learned from BRAC is how you um, take good approaches and, and, and extend them at scale. They've got one of the largest community paralegal programs in the world, maybe the largest, uh, that's working throughout Bangladesh. And uh, they have really um, shown the world how, you, how these sorts of grassroots development efforts can be done at a high quality um, at a scale that is is uh, tantamount to the problems that we face, and that's an important question for for our movement because oftentimes the community paralegal programs are sort of ad hoc or uh, limited in scope. You see something in the capital, you see something somewhere in the provinces, but we really need to take more seriously the question of how we get these services to everyone. Um, George Soros is on our advisory board, and I, I owe him a great uh, debt. He, he's sort of uh, been a been a, um, uh, a a visionary and a and a and a backer of this work for a long time. He was gave the seed money for that that um, that program that we started in Sierra Leone back in two thousand and three. <clears throat> and these these questions are obviously and and your experience at Namati are obviously really important to young social entrepreneurs. So. I'm thinking of uh, specifically what advice you can offer to young social entrepreneurs who, like you, have become uh, perhaps disillusioned by the conventional way of thinking uh, and also of, of institutions and who really want to implement a large-scale change to impact millions mm. of people around the world. And, and uh, where should they start? Mm. <laughs> um, that's a great question, too. Um, one piece of advice is that preparation, I think, is probably overrated, then oftentimes there's a sense that I ought to do X, Y, and Z in order to put myself in a place where I could take a risk or uh, do what I really want to do. And I've found over time that um, taking the straightest, shortest path um, towards uh, what you're most interested in um, 
is 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 worth it, and then oftentimes the oftentimes the preparatory steps um, are aren't as necessary as they might seem to be. Um, the other piece of advice that I have um, is that there is this uh, this 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 magical draw of entrepreneurialism, and you know I joined Ashoka, and Ashoka has really helped um, generate a whole a whole culture around new solutions to old problems. Uh, but I suppose what I think is a useful complement to that to that spirit is an appreciation for for history and and um, and uh, and tradition. And uh, so the other thing that I try to remind myself is don't forget to read, don't forget to think hard about the the ways in which people have tried and failed and tried and maybe succeeded and you know partially failed or partially succeeded um who have come before us that that uh that that uh there, there, there's so much to learn from 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 history uh and that any attempts to innovate should really be informed by that which is a great lesson uh, surely in all fields uh, well, for our listeners, the best way to reach Vivek and to support the crucial work of Namati is through namati.org, which is N-A-M-A-T-I.org. Click on the webpage links above this podcast for further details. And uh, Vivek, it's great to have you with us and much continued success with, uh, success with your crucial work. Robert, thank you so much for having me. It was a total pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.